Hello, campers. With this Dogger and Muddy Music show, we start a three-part series where we explore what I call music candy stores, places where musicians and music lovers go to get their sonic wishes and desires filled. This could be record stores, concert halls, or in the case of tonight's interview session, a vintage guitar shop. About a year ago, Dave Hinson, the founder of Killer Vintage Guitars in St. Louis, opened Killer, Killer Vintage Specialty Guitars in Muddy in my hometown of Dallas, Texas. Dave is highly regarded in the industry. He is quoted and referenced in Vintage Guitar Magazine often. He is a consultant to Heritage Auctions, the world's largest collectibles auctioneer, which is headquartered here in Dallas. But to me, the ultimate compliment to a guru, expert, is who are the people that walk through the doors to buy product? That being, in this case, guitars, amps, and more. Well, when you go to the website for Dave St. Louis store, www.killervintage.com, you will see pics of some of his awesome clientele. Keith Richards, Eric Clapton, Billy Gibbons, the late Les Paul, Joe Walsh, Robert Cray, and many more top-tier artists that turn to Dave for product inventory and knowledge. And please, don't forget to check out the Dallas website www.killervintagespecialtyguitars.com. A few weeks back, I set up our portable interview studio at Dave's Dallas store by the Love Field Airport. He had just walked in the door from a meeting at Heritage Auctions. We talked 57 Chevys, Gibson 335 semi-hollow bodies, Frank Zappa, and Magic Dust. So please, sit back and enjoy. This is the Dogger and Muddy Music Show. Listen up. It's all about the music. Let's check in on the artists, songs, and people behind the scenes. Are you listening? I am here with Dave Hinson, the guru of guitars and owner and founder of Killer Vintage Specialty Guitars here in Dallas, Texas. They also had, they started in St. Louis, which uh, Dave will tell us about. But uh, before we get into his vintage guitars and his skill at being a guru, why, well, let's open with uh, Dave. Why don't you give the people a little bit of a sense as to how the heck you got into music in the first place? Um, you know, I wanted to play drums when I was a kid in fifth grade and my dad, I came home with a thing from school and my dad said, no way, you're not going to play drums in this house. And he gave me his guitar and started lessons over at Mel Bay. Mel, uh, was a buddy of my dad's. He took lessons from Mel when he was a kid. I mean, he was probably late teens, 20 ish before World War II, around 39, 40. Um, and then. <clears throat> but Mel was had a store in Kirkwood by then. He's the guy that wrote all the books that yeah, all, everybody I mean, in my generation learned how to play Mel Bay through Mel Bay books. Well, Mel Bay's books are still out there, right? And Tons Mel, of them. Yeah, Mel was my first teacher for oh, I, just a handful of lessons, and then I had a guy, one of his teachers, Mel, uh, this guy named John Johnson, uh, older black guy, great jazz player, which he and I didn't exactly get along because I wanted to play, you know, soul music and ventures and Dwayne Eddy. And then, <clears throat> then the Beatles hit shortly after that. Um, and of course, that's what I wanted to play. I wanted to play Chuck Berry songs, but he wasn't. Too, he wanted me to, you know, do the Mel Bay books, which I got through. I think I got into book three a little bit, and before I just decided, nah, I'll just, I can figure these out by ear. 
So what kind of guitar was your dad's guitar? Uh, it's a D'Angelico style A. Oh, my goodness. I still have it. Do you really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that's probably worth some money. It's probably seven or eight grand-ish. Yeah. Somewhere in that neighborhood. But then when you really started to rip the guitar, you probably moved beyond that, right? You... Well, I was, let's see, in 64, I was 13. I went to Mel, which is the store that we went to, because just because that was my dad's choice. Um, <clears throat> he, uh, he had a used, I remember it was a used Stratocaster. It was white. I don't remember. I think it was a maple neck. Um, so it's probably a Mary Kay or something, you know, that is like a hundred bucks hanging on the wall or 125. I had enough money to buy it for mowing lawns, but I, and I went into, and Mel was like, no, you don't want that. That's used. He said, you want this? And he flipped open a gray case. He said, we just got these. This is what you want. This is the fall 64. It was a new Fender Mustang. Oh my god, A red one. And I was like, okay. So I bought the Fender Mustang. <laughs> Had a little payment book for Kirkwood Bank for eleven dollars and forty four cents a month. I, had, I think twelve payments because I had given some down, and um, it was a horrible guitar. I oh wish, really? I should have bought the Strat. It was stupid. But fast forward a little bit. By the time I was sixteen, I'd had a couple. I'd gotten a couple other guitars. I got an, a Les Paul Junior, and I know, I know I had a box, something or other, a Bulldog or a Spitfire or one, something. One of the teardrop boxes, or no, I was like a Strat shape. <clears throat> and um, my, I needed a car. I had, I had a '56 Pontiac convertible was my first car. So when I turned 16, 67, that, that gives away my age. <laughs> I um, had a '56 Pontiac convertible that I'd, I'd bought because my dad was a. We had a junkyard, so I buy cars really cheap. I hit a curb, broke the tie rod, and drove. I had been driving it for only you know, six, eight months. Anyway, um, I had some money. I had the fifty bucks I sold the Pontiac to a junkyard for. My dad and I went looking for cars, and there was a Ford dealer in a shopping center in South South County, St. Louis. And they back then they didn't want anything old on their lot, so that anything ten years old they would just wholesale out. So. They wanted $200 for this car, and my dad was like, well, why don't you just save your money? And I go, well, for what? And he goes, well, let me see what I can do. So he goes, you don't play a Fender anymore. And I go, no, the Mustang? No. So he came back. He somehow arranged the deal. I traded that Fender Mustang and some crappy Magnetone amp that he'd recovered in wood grain contact paper, um, <clears throat> even for a black 57 Chevy convertible. Not bad. I wish I had the car back. I'll bet I you do. never want to see that Mustang again. But the car would have been... And it was a Factory 6 Bel Air convertible. Oof. Oof. Which is really rare in a convertible, a six-cylinder. So, and that, but, you know, I was just like... We were just... I always played, ba- played in bands, and, you know, that's the reason I learned to play is I didn't want to dance. So I was always <laughs> in the band. <laughs> All right, so you now... You moved up with guitars and with a, an awesome car, but now you got to start making some money, right? So I would assume you start getting mu- jobs in the music. Uh, I did business? some, but I never did, you know, sort of casually. I mean, I wasn't playing six nights a week until much later. But you know, and I had I had regular jobs. And I was still in school. And I was living in Springfield, uh, Missouri, then and going to, going to school and playing in a band down there. Um, we, you know, it was, life was better than there were no cell phones. 
made right. things much easier, you know? Absolutely. Back in the days of phone booths and pay phones. <laughs> <laughs> so, so how do we fast forward and move into all of a sudden you're this guru of guitars? How do we move into that? You know, I don't know it's how that all happened. It was back then they were used guitars. And I didn't have any money, so I was constantly trading or swapping. And by around, well, it must have been around 68 or 9, we figured out that if you wanted to go to a show, if you showed up at the stage door with a guitar case, you could usually get in. Was the only, there were no security guys. They were just off-duty cops. So you'd show up at, like, Keel Auditorium or Fox or whoever. Whoever it was you wanted to go see, like Cream or... Um, blind faith or whatever, you'd show up with a guitar case and go backstage. Try and, to sell. So they thought you were part you, of the band, or yeah, or you try to sell and try and sell them a guitar. And sometimes you did, sometimes you didn't. Oh, crack me up! But you can go see the show for free from stage. And um, so you used to do that a lot. And there was a handful of us that did that around St. Louis back in those days. And then um, you know, this uh, I guess it was around seventy. I hadn't moved to Springfield yet. I was still in St. Louis. Um, but I was always wanted a 335. And that was... I love that was a guy. It's my favorite. There was always... There was this guy that had two of them. Uh, he was sort of a... He was more serious about dealing guitars. I was more serious about... I don't know what I was serious about <laughs> at that point. But um, he had a red one and a sunburst in both 1960s. And this was would have been 1970, so they were 10 years old. And he wanted 200 bucks a piece for him. I had, I had about 250 or so. I could have bought one, but somehow, and I don't remember if it was my idea or how it came up, but I ended up buying both of them from him for 350. Borrowed the mo- some money from my dad and borrow- bought both of those guitars for 350. Sold the red one, the Martin Bar from Jethro Tull, for 350, and kept the Sunburst, which I still have. In fact, that's the one that's in the Oswald T-shirt that J.R. Lavelle, the homicide, Dallas homicide detective, is playing in that picture on my shirt that I'm kind of well-known for. I still think the uh, the 335, the Gibson 335, for those of you who don't know, uh, the one that Eric played with Cream mm-hmm. with that kind of uh, matte finish to it. or uh, Well, it was just dirty. Yeah. It was it was cherry. Something. I think it's just, it was just uh, that to me is just the most gorgeous guitar ever. Yep. Yeah, I like three. Well, Johnny Rivers was the reason I wanted to play a three thirty-five. He was, he was way before, yeah, any of those guys. In fact, that's the guy that all those guys looked up to was Johnny Rivers. He was like a big deal way before they they were. Well, and then uh, Freddie Freddie King, who was kind of played three forty-five. Yeah, played three forty-fives, and he was another one of right. uh, Clapton's idols, I believe. Yeah, but Keith Richards and Clapton have both made homage to Johnny Rivers. It was one of the main guys that influenced. All right. Actually, I got to play with Johnny on a show a couple years ago. That was fun. So <clears throat> when did you open up Killer uh, Vintage Guitars up in St. Louis? When did you do that? Not until 95. I was, uh, I was dig- big digging up guitars and kind of wholesale them to other dealers. There was a shop in St. Louis called Silver Strings that opened in 74. So I would kind of deal through Ed Seeley, the guy that ran that store. And Ed was kind of a big deal back then. Um, he was one of the few vintage shops. And there was a buddy of mine in Houston, Kurt Linhoff, 
who was probably one of the first vintage dealers. Kurt was the guy who sold Dwayne Allman, Dark Sunburst, Les Paul. He also found the um, Futura, which is the prototype of the uh, Explorer. Right. They only made um, they made three prototype crazy guitars, which was the the V, the Futura, and the Modern. Okay. Which they manufactured, obviously the V and these are all the in the, these are all in the Gibson family. Yep, but they didn't. Nobody has ever seen the Modern. It's the Bigfoot of guitars. It's never been seen, although it did exist because it was in San Antonio when Kurt bought the guy the Futura from this guy Ponte Gonzalez. Ponte told him he asked Kurt. He said, "How'd you get it?" And he said, "Well, I went to the Gibson dealer." And told him that Gibson had boring guitars, but I didn't want to play Fender. So the rep came, a rep came from Gibson. They met him at the train station. And Ponte described the three guitars the guy had. He said, well, he had the one that I bought, which was the Futura. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> he said the other two he had, he, has, he said, and this is Ponte's words, he had one that looked like a Y, which was the V. V. And he had one that looked like a broom, which would have oh. been the Modern. He bought the Futura, and the rep left with the other two guitars, and nobody has no idea. There's no uh, anybody has any idea what happened to him. So when you say modern, train, was there was only one modern made that is known? No one's ever seen one. It's never turned up. Interesting. It's the Bigfoot of guitars. So if it shows up, but I think I know where it is. Oh, well, that's exciting. But that's time for another show or when mm-hmm. it Okay, have you have you reached out a couple times? Not yet. All right. That that will be fantastic to hear that story. <clears throat> so you you've got a heck of a track record in St. Louis. You're doing great. Uh, if you go up uh, when you go up to his website uh, folks, you'll see uh pictures of all the guests that drop in, which is very amazing. But you've now uh, uh, I guess you're coming up on your 1-year anniversary in Dallas. Mm, not yet. We opened the store in October. Okay. Of 16, so yeah, sort of. Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, less than 30 days. Exactly. I mean, I guess so, one of us has lost track of time, I think. Well, yeah, that's not unusual for me. <laughs> um, so you're coming up on your one-year one anniversary in Dallas, so why Dallas? I've been working with Heritage Auctions for the last eight years, although I've been going to guitar shows here for 30-something years, since the 80s. Um, I just noticed that there wasn't a, a really cool guitar shop with vintage stuff, a mix of, you know, sort of, the player tone perspective, which is the way my shop in St. Louis is based. Everybody that works there is a working musician, or at least has had a long history of being a working musician. And we don't sell widgets. We sell actually sell. We know what we're selling. We, we know how to play, and we know what to look for. We know what's good and what's getting bad. And we try to make the guitars playable and treat people the way we want to be treated. And sort of, I wanted to sort of do that here, mainly because I, a lot of customers. Um, of mine, our friends in this area, and we sh- we were shipping a lot of guitars to Dallas out of St. Louis. And I thought, well, maybe I'll try opening a shop here. So that's what I did, because there was nothing in Dallas itself. I mean, there's some stores on the outskirts, obviously, right. but you know, since Char- Charlie's was like the the shit, um, and you know, it takes a certain amount of expertise. To you know, and you can get caught sometimes. You just have to roll with it, know what you're looking at, and hope hope for the best. Yeah, if people follow it, I mean, it's you read details about 
when people open up a Gibson, open up a Fender, what you have to look for to see well, if it's yeah. all original and, and stuff. And it gets some, very detailed. Sometimes you can get um, took, as they say. Yeah. I've seen that happen with people because I do a lot of authentication. You know, and it's, it's, um, it's not always easy. The counterfeiters are getting better. One other thing that you mentioned earlier before we were on air is uh, a nice thing about Dallas is you, you have, as I mentioned on the website up in St. Louis, you'll see great pictures of some of the artists that drop by, but you've already had artists drop by in Dallas a lot, and you mentioned that's primarily because it's kind of a hub city. So it if is, you could, explain, explain the hub, set, uh, hub, hub setup for uh, well, bands. Well, a, a lot of touring bands, especially the bigger ones, will um, find a, a city and stay, you know, sort of camp there for four or five six maybe a week at a time and fly out and do shows in surrounding cities like um when petty was here petty and walsh they came in on wednesday and thursday went up to uh, oklahoma city i guess and did the first show and then uh dallas a day that was on thursday i think the first show and then saturday they did dallas then they went little rock on sunday and then somewhere else and then they went moved to new orleans for a week and then they go to chicago for a week and they just do the surrounding cities that way you don't have to get a hotel right every you know show they just camp someplace and then and they can't help themselves so they come in here and they have to fiddle hopefully. with hopefully and they have to fiddle with some of the toys right hopefully that's the idea yeah <laughs> i'm going to step back to a gentleman you mentioned earlier that i've read about recently and that's uh Dwayne eddie because uh dan arbach uh, his new album, he pulls Dwayne Eddy in on that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and that, so he's coming back to life a little bit. Good, good. He was, a, he was a big deal to me when I was a kid. Absolutely. <clears throat> and Dan's a really nice guy, too. I know Dan. Right. Yeah, I think it's interesting what I, I called uh, rebel music sometimes or the uh, renegades. Right. Uh, you know, like Foo, Foo Fighters, that excellent uh, video show that they complex that they did where they talked about uh, kind of the renegade music of Nashville and of Texas. Right. And to me, uh, what Dan Auerbach's doing and uh, Jason Isbell, et cetera, is they're, they're maybe not, they're not following the typical Nashville model. Thank in, God. That's yeah. it's horrible. Yeah, it's like oh, I would. My amateur comment would be: It's like overproduced many times. What would you say about typical Nashville music? Crap. <laughs> okay, that nets it out for you. <laughs> Dave, let's get into the business of being a guru of guitars. Back when, uh, in the late 60s, early 70s, when you started pl actually buying and selling different guitars for yourself, I mean, the, the value of these, as you mentioned, was $150, $200. But today, some of these six, 50s and 60s Fenders and Gibsons are worth a huge amounts of money. So that's a big step. But uh, how have we transitioned from $200 to thousands and thousands of dollars over these years? Well, I think... It was. It's sort of generational, and we're going to have to see how far this goes into the future. <clears throat> whether um, future generations have that appre appreciation and/or um, acceleration of value for this thing. A lot of the reason is, um, say, guys that are my age, and you know, within ten years below, fifteen years. Below and above, we grew up with a really important time in music. Right. There's a lot of pop music that came out 
and was made during that time period that's proven to be sort of unequaled, unsurpassed in many respects. A lot of that was because of the guitars being um, revered, uh, maybe placed as icons themselves, where um, as they acquired wealth, people of the baby boomer age, they put value on these instruments and basically created a market for that's I'm not sure okay. I'm not sure how um, that may translate for future um, I know a lot of people in the for in their 40s now that are sort of where my guys were when this acceleration of these guitars 30s really um, started happening a lot of those guys are into, you know, Ibanez's and Dean's and pointing guitars because that's what they grew up with. That's why they identified with. Like, you know, to me, a 57 Chevy is a really cool car. Right. Because that was a really cool car when I was not old enough to get a car. Absolutely. But to somebody who's 40, the real car, cool car from their teens is probably a Nissan or something. <laughs> <clears throat> so True. it doesn't True. translate True. the same way. And, uh, you know, in point of reference, I mean, it might say my dad's generation, you know, a Model T, you know, means nothing to me or anybody my age and certainly to anyone younger than me. So that has, you know, yeah, it was it was really cool. But, OK, I don't want to I don't want that. Right. So it makes no sense. In In other words, to. Put the val- uh, expect the value to continue, although it may. And I think with certain uh, niches, certain blue chip instruments like Sunburst Les Pauls, uh, original custom color fenders from the 50s and 60s, um, pre-war Martins, yeah. um, I think those will, but I have a feeling it may grow smaller and smaller where it may become like uh, Stradivarius's. There's only a handful of people in the world that can buy those or even think about buying those instruments. And it may reach that point someday with certain electric guitars. Right. And anything with issues, compromise, not original, those sort of instruments may not have um, a corresponding value that they do now. Someday. Technically, the they people say that the quality of a Fender guitar, a Strat coming off the line right now, can't match something coming out in '55. You know, in, in the early '60s. Technically, why? You know, why are the those older guitars so valued from a tone? I mean, is it tone? What it's what tone, it? it's workmanship, it's a lot of things. It's like my repair guy said at one point, which I think was a great quote. He said, "You know, the late fifties, primarily, and and even into the early sixties, it was the perfect melding of men and machines, and may never happen again." There was a lot of craftsmanship that went into that, along with manufacturing. There was manufacturing, but there was a lot of expertise and craftsmanship that went in where now everything is cnc cut and basically done there's you know certain techniques that will never i doubt will come back the other thing too is what we really need are we need some you know teens to start playing guitars and change the music industry 
Right now, there's no guitar-driven pop music, so there's not a lot of interest in guitars. There's a lot of 20-somethings that listen to electronic music, and that's a bigger market now. It's like I heard a quote to say that, um, you know, because rock was basically what drove guitar. Absolutely. Enthusiasm for a long, long time, many decades. Um, and I heard somebody made, said the quote that um, rock is in its jazz phase. It's on the outskirts now. It's not center attention. It's there, but it's not the focal point anymore. Yeah, I sit there and I listen to, oh, I can't remember the name. Oh, Flaming Lips. Right. They're getting all kinds of publicity for their new album. Right. And I listen to it and I'm going, no, that's not rock and roll. That's, that, right. at least to me, that, that's nowhere near rock and roll. Right. Well, I mean, it's it's all... You know, people probably said that about doo-wop groups, and I'm sure that, you know, a lot of people were disappointed when big bands, you know, sort of lost their luster. It, it happens. Absolutely. Things change. Um, I think the guitar, you know, I remember, you know, at one point, the guitar wasn't that big of a market in the 20s. It was banjos and accordions. Right, and banjos because and, they could project better than guitars. Mm-hmm. And so the market changes. The instruments have to adapt to an extent. Um, primarily the music industry has to change somewhat. And there is no music industry is the biggest problem. There's no direction. Uh, if you look on our um, Killer Vintage Specialty Guitars Facebook page, there's an interview with Frank Zappa from 1991 who lays it out pretty succinctly of what Interesting. And why? From the big change from the 60s to actually everything past the 70s to here. Really from the 90s on. Um, I had a, <clears throat> one of the guys that works at the shop in St. Louis, uh, Brian Henneman's the main songwriter for the Bottle Rockets. It's a pretty big alt country band or Americana band, I guess they're right. called now. But um, he, uh, one of their engineers or producers, uh, one of their albums, um, told them kind of the scenario of what happened in the early 90s when grunge hit the record companies fired all the old guys at both coasts LA and New York all those old guys that had been doing everything from the Beatles to Frank Sinatra to the metal Metallica and Poison whatever they all got canned and they brought in kids from Seattle uh, from the grunge era to run the record companies and be the AR guys and whatnot. Well, at the same time, that was the same time that file sharing happened, Napster and whatnot. Right. Those guys had no clue how to deal with that. And rock music went away. All those rock stations became classic rock stations. Where did all those old guys go to? They all went to Nashville. Right. That's when you saw Garth Brooks flying in from a trapeze and whatnot. The same guys that were doing Metallica and Poison were now in Nashville doing and have created the, what we have is the new country now, which is not so great. There's some good country artists, and they do use instruments still. There's some great guitar players. There's some great instrument, all instruments. But for the, the pop, most popular part of the new country is kind of terrible. Well, and some of the, some of the country is where the rock artists have gone, well, right? Well, it is. I mean, that's where your real players are. Right. 
So it's, it's kind of like. But those guys aren't the mainstream. It's it's sort of the schlocky stuff that's the mainstream. Yeah, they're feeding. They're I guess they're feeding off of it for lack of a better term. Right. You know, saying that we're now country. And so basically, popular. what grunge killed rock radio. Interesting. All right. So we have to make. Who knows when it's going to happen? But at some point, something else will change. You know, nobody expected the Beatles, which gave us the Stones and the Who and right. everything else. And Stevie Ray Vaughan really reinvented the blues when he hit the hit, hit it. Because basically, he took Hendrix and and Albert King and brought them back to life, right. right? Sort of, you know. But I mean, again, there's no. But he was around when there were still guys, Correct. guitar hero guys. I mean, really, I haven't had anybody since Slash was the last one, probably that had a major influence on the guitar market where it got kids to play and made people want to play and buy guitars. And Eddie Van Halen before Eddie, that. big time before that. Before Stevie, even. Yeah, and, and, and Edge, but he doesn't, he's, he's, not, not, he's a, not the front man. He can't even play guitar, though. Whoa! <laughs> He'll admit it. He plays pedals. Okay. Well, that's true. Okay. He's yeah. not a guitar player. Interesting. But they put him. What was that? Play it, not play it. Yeah, loud I have refused to watch that because <laughs> that guy's in it. I won't do it. Jack, what was Jack, Jack White. White? Jack White's great. Jackson yeah, and, and Jimmy, Jimmy and Edge. Yeah, right. Which I don't understand that combination. But don't get me started. Yeah, but it, it sold a DVD, so yeah, I don't have it either. <clears throat> so not, I'm not. So not I'm not. To me. Tru- I'm not in trouble with you. <laughs> I don't judge. I just won't participate. Yeah. They become your babies. The guitars do, and I mean, to an extent. To a certain extent, the, so the you were talking about some of the beautiful manufacturing s- stuff that was done back in the beginning when Leo Fender was sitting in the back room. One story I actually heard today uh, was that uh, the pickups were wound by individuals for a long time, and I heard one story. Maybe you can confirm this: that uh, there was a lady who did it for years for the custom shop. She did all the windings. <clears throat> Abigail, yeah, she just retired Abigail. recently. Yabara, and there's, you know, I mean, that's there's all sorts. Of, I mean, that, that was sort of her story. Sort of came out as sort of the last gra- gasp of you know trying to get you know the interest back in guitars. She's she was great, um, and I'm sure there were dozens of others pr- before her. At all these companies, right. but the instruments that the new companies are making are fine, and if they, you know, who knows in fifty years if they sound better like the old ones did, then yeah. I mean, they and they should. I mean, they're being made a lot in a lot of ways in the original format, you know, with the same sort of recipe. But sometimes it's magic dust because I mean you can have four four guitars right sitting next to each other. Oh yeah, all made. There's no predicting how it's going to end up. <clears throat> exactly, you can have ten of the same guitar made by the same guy, and there's going to be one that's way better than the rest of them, and there's no explaining why that happens. Yeah, I, I, on a personal note, I've evolved on my bass playing, and when I finally got a hold of it's coming up on about a year ago, I found a, a Sonic Blue Jazz uh, Fender bass. Right. And the tone on it was just, I just picked it up, and it was just like heaven. Yeah. It was just the greatest thing it in the world. It was because of the paint. <laughs> it was because it, that, that paint is very good. That's a very good paint job. <laughs> so, well, tell me, tell me a little bit. Uh, you were backstage, and you sat in front of the cr- cream. What were some of the biggest gigs you sat, sat in front of back oh, then? I, don't know. I mean, they were just, you know, whoever. 
I mean, there was there was a time when I hung out with the dead quite a bit, when John McIntyre, Uncle John's band, that era, yeah, seventy one ish, seventy two. You see in the paper they're coming to town on uh, December first. Um, yeah, but that's, dead dead and company. Right. Yeah. Oh, when? Uh, I believe it's December first at, at American Airlines. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I don't really do dead anymore. Yeah. That back then it was fun. But I saw Bob Weir when he came through promoting his uh, solo effort a while ago, and half right. the show was his his uh, cowboy album, and right. then the other half was uh, dead music. And I got to admit, it was it was really neat. Right. They they won they they explored their solos and their their uh, music pretty neat. It was a pretty neat sonic trip there. Right. Um, right. So as we're going to visit every once in a while, we're going to bring Dave back to the show. And uh, you got anything in mind for the next time we get together? Something we can, a story we can pick up on when it, we get back together? It'll be a surprise. It'll I'll think of something really cool. All right, Dave. I love it. Um, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to visit with me and, our, and the campers that are listening in. And we'll talk to you again soon. Thank Very you, good. Dave. Thanks. Bye. Go to www.doggerandmuddy.com for more podcast interviews, blogs, photos, and information on the music scene. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Dogger and Muddy. That was a treat. As you can tell, Dave Henson has a heck of a lot of experience and is more than happy to share his knowledge, which is greatly appreciated. Remember to drop by his two stores, Killer Vintage Guitars in St. Louis and Killer Vintage Specialty Guitars in Dallas. Also, he's got websites for both locations as well for you to check out. Dave's conversation brought back personal memories for me as well. All during high school, I rode shotgun in my friend's 57 Chevy Bel Air. It was cascade green and white. It was quite a fine ride. Well, it is fall. The weather's cooling and the festivals are wrapping up. The last bit of State Fair of Texas fried food will be consumed this Sunday, the 22nd of October. Then the gates will close out another year. Last weekend, I attended the Austin City Limits Festival. The diversity and caliber of the music was a real treat. The atmosphere in Austin is the best. The good thing is that the double weekend event proved very safe. Believe me, our thoughts and prayers go out to the families affected by the Las Vegas tragedy. Next week will be part two of our Music Candy Store series. We will visit with Chris Penn from Good Records. He and his staff have helped fill my music shelves with great albums for quite a while now. So remember, play it loud. 